welcome in everyone. Um, back after about a six-week hiatus, um, I am Mark Real Jr., and uh, this is State of the Family Courts. It is Thursday, May twelfth, uh, twenty twenty-two, and joining us tonight is Texas Attorney Ben Beveridge. Uh, welcome, Ben. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So um, I'm really excited to have Ben on. Um, many of you in the Equal and Shared Parenting community are, are probably familiar with his work, um, have heard his name, have seen him um, in, in various areas, uh, especially in the state of Texas, uh, where, where they've really pushed the envelope and they, they've passed some more positive legislation. And we'll talk about it here in a second. Got hopefully more on the docket in 2023. So We'll kind of hop right in here, Ben, and I'll let you um, introduce yourself. And I think obviously you have a really cool, unique story on how you ended up where you're at today and then what you do in terms of your your really area of practice within family law. Okay. Yeah, you bet. So, I mean, I started off as a non-custodial parent, you know, about uh, 15 years ago now. And, um, you know, I, I never got denied access to my kids by their mother but just what they call in Texas a standard possession order. Um, I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't stomach it. I never got used to it. I just always wanted more time with my kids. And um, about eight years ago, I got started with the father's rights movement uh, in Texas. And I kind of got involved in some uh, legislative stuff. And I kind of found out about equal parenting and uh, you know, this, this concept of equal parenting, I found out it's widely accepted among, you know, researchers all over the world, you know, past two decades. It's like, that's the golden standard. They all know children need equal access to their parents. And, um, you know, I kind of, I've decided that, uh, I was going to get equal access to my kids and I would litigate until they turned 18. If that's, you know, what it took. And uh, I, I know plenty of people that, spent over a hundred thousand dollars trying to get equal access to their kids and you know didn't get it and so i figured you know i it, i'm just going to go to law school and i'll litigate myself you know and uh if i'm going to be spending all that money and i went to law school my last semester of law school i filed the modification in my case uh, to try to get equal access to my kids and about Two months after I passed the bar and started practicing, I signed a mediated settlement agreement. They gave me equal access to my kids. And uh, actually, I did that mediation uh, at a firm called Goldsberry and Associates. Uh, Miss Goldsberry mediated my case. And uh, it, it was a, a room called the Lincoln Room, they have pictures of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, after I started practicing law for about a year, I, I actually went back to work. I went to work for Miss Goldsberry, and uh, you know now I sit in a Lincoln room with non-custodial parents, and I mediate their you know cases with them and help them try to get equal access to to their kids. So it's kind of full circle type thing. You know? That's awesome. That's awesome. So the the other thing that's unique um, about what you do in your current role is who you represent. And so I'll start out with for our viewers in case they don't know. Um, I know we talk about a lot of this stuff like it's the back of our hand, but the Texas standard possession order, or I guess the, is it the expanded or extended? What is the term? 
Well, there's uh, kind of two of them. One's the standard possession order. That's the one that had been in place for, you know, decades. Uh, and th there was also always what's called the expanded standard possession order. Um, and used to the standard possession order was the presumption. And what that is, is non-custodial parents get their kids first, third and fifth weekends from Friday at six to Sunday at six, two hours on Thursdays, and then, you know, holidays and um, uh, summer and holidays. And what the expanded standard possession order is, is your Friday actually starts when the kids get out of school on Friday, and then you keep them until the kids return to school on Monday, and your Thursday is an overnight. So when you have them just on Thursdays, you get them for the overnight, but it's when you're, when it's your weekend, you get them from Thursday when they get out of school until Monday when they go back. But now that, that expanded standard possession order uh, as of the last legislative se session is now the standard, essentially. It's the presumption. So it's, it's not quite equal possession, but it's a huge improvement over what we've had. Yeah. And so you got you you had I know I know a lot of people in the state of Texas were disappointed um, in 2021 when the legislative session ended. Um, but that expanded order was really from from an attorney's perspective is a huge win. That that starting point is so much further along. And, and prior to going on, you said if you take the school time out for kids, it's it's like a 53 47 split in terms of actual time with the kids, which is a big deal. Um, where, so what's, uh, and, and, and I know we can't share all the details and I know you're, you're intimately involved in a lot of what's going on in Texas, but, but what are kind of some of the broad brush? It's an every other year state. So you made the run in 2021 and, um, some legislators kind of got in the way despite having the, you guys having the votes. Um, so what, what, what's on, what's in the plans for, uh, 2023 in the state of Texas? Um, well, first I don't want to take too much credit as far as legislative session goes. I used to be heavily, heavily involved. I, I wrote some of the legislation before. I would line up the reps. But uh, since I started practicing, I, I haven't been as involved as I'd like to be. But I'm coordinating with the people at the National Parenting Organization. Uh, they're, they're doing a huge push in Texas and a few other people. So, yeah, the... Um, as far as uh, possession schedules go, that expanded standard possession order, if you just add one extra Wednesday overnight a week, that turns it into a two, two, three, uh, you know, 50, 50 possession schedule. And it's nice because when you go into mediation or something, you say, look, all we want is one extra Wednesday a week, you know, tell her that. And, you know, it's, it's not such a big deal. And, you know, the kids are in school on Wednesdays, so it's really additional four hours of possession time a week. You know, that's what we're talking about here. We can settle or go to court over that, you know. And um, so one of the kind of common sense legislation bills is making it to where um, you can elect to have that extra Wednesday a week, you know, you used to, you had the presumption for standard possession order and you could elect the expanded standard, but now we'd like to do something where, you know, you get the expanded standard and you can elect to have your extra Wednesdays. And so it's essentially electing a 50-50 order uh, possession schedule. 
Uh, it's not as good as just having it presumed you're going to get it, but it's it's a baby step. And you know what we've learned in Texas is you know it's better to get a baby step than than nothing. You know. Yeah, I, th- I think we've seen that. I mean, realistically, outside of outside of Arkansas, um, every state has been each each year, each session. You make you take a baby step. Uh, West Virginia in their first real push didn't get anything. Their second year, they get a, a thirty. If if one parent doesn't get at least thirty five percent, there's facts, findings, and conclusions of law. And then in year three, they broke through and got the presumption. I like that angle though. Um, around instead of just saying we want a presumption of 50-50 custody, um, you essentially have the opportunity or there's, there's legislation that's going to go in front of, of your legislative body to essentially make the 2-2-3 a standard, the standard possession. Rather than saying we want 50-50, you guys have been make those baby steps and now it's not talking about 50-50. Now it's like, hey, we just want those extra four hours after school on Wednesday and you have it because I think a lot of the groups that oppose this legislation, they they attack the broad brush presumption that it should be equal and it's very vague. So how, how what what what's what's been a, a, in terms of talking with legislators or just in your opinion, do you think that that's going to be impactful for you guys in Texas? Yes, yeah, and it's kind of hard to talk about what's going to be impactful uh, because honestly, we've had we've had the votes for years, you know, eight years. Um, and so it's almost really not a question of, you know, what's going to work or what bills they are not going to like. It, it all comes down to just the, you know, procedural mechanisms at the legislature, just getting past those gatekeepers, just getting it to the committee. And, you know, if, if we ever, you know, if we ever do that with any equal parenting bill, we're confident it'll pass. But yeah, to answer your question, I, I think it does. Uh, I, I think it, it helps us to pass something because one, it's not, uh, you know, they can't argue against it and say, Hey, you know, we're, we don't want to make this huge change and make a presumption for equal possession. It's like, all we're asking for is an extra Wednesday night a week. And so it's, it's kind of, it, it kind of try to sneak it in there as uh, under the radar type thing, you know, uh, it's kind of hard to argue against. Um, I don't know if it'll pass or not. It's uh, it's it's so hard to say. The opposition in Texas are so influential. Uh, just incredible. I mean, we've had uh, legislature uh, senators and reps. I mean, I, I specifically remember one senator told us, "Look, whatever the Texas Family Law Foundation tells us to do in family law, we're going to do it." Uh, you know. And so that that's what we're up against in Texas. But yeah, I hope a bill like this that makes it seem like a nonchalant little change will kind of help help slide it in. Because I, I correct me if I'm wrong, if you know better, but I don't think a bill that's ever made it to a general vote in terms of equal and shared parenting has ever failed. Uh, it, 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 it they they die in committee. Um, I, I I mean there are. I know there are some some states that it's literally one state senator that is is presenting Minnesota, Alabama, some of these other states where it's just one or two people holding up equal and shared parenting. So I think I think that says a lot that that anything that gets to the to, to a general vote, um, gen- it has has done it has passed. Because yeah, I know definitely. 
Yeah, once they get to the floor, I mean, it's a pass. And I mean, so the, the state reps and senators are in favor of it. But I mean, the population's in favor of it because every single, um, uh, you know, study, not study, but where they you poll that I've seen, where they poll the population, the population's overwhelmingly in favor of it, you know? Go to sharedparenting.org, NPO's website. Every single state they've polled has at least 80% of the population in favor of equal and shared parenting. Yeah, I mean, it's literally just the special interest um, going against democracy, basically, you know, and pulling their strings. And yeah. that's the only thing that's holding it up is, is special interest. You know, I, I've told people and I, I guess I've been saying it for over a year now, so I need to adjust my years. But um, I, I've been I've always said in the next two to five years, this is going to become one of the hot button social justice issues. This impacts more of the population than any other movement in human history outside of suffrage in the 1920s. Um, there's more people that are impacted by this because it's both men and women. It's men and women. It's grandparents, parents, kids. There's so many different demographics that are impacted by it. But it's just at some point in time, there's going to be a snowball. Is that, I mean, we saw, we got Arkansas, then we got West Virginia. There's a hand, I guess there's a, still a few states that are on the table potentially this year. But 23, 2023, 2024, like I, I just anticipate there's going to be a snowball of states that just fall. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously the first one is the toughest to get, you know, because the opposition is like, no, we're going to put something in place that no one else is doing, you know, it doesn't. But yeah, once once you get a few of them start going, uh, you know, it makes it easier to sell to the legislature and, you know, the legislatures kind of start to to they know which way it's going. So you might as well get on top of it, you know, and own it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. I don't know when that's going to happen. It, it seems like, you know, it's moving so slow. But I don't know, maybe it's moving kind of quick compared to how legislation, you know, it's, it's a slow process. Yeah, you talk, that's the thing. You talk to people who have been at this for a decade or more. I mean, really nothing happened. I mean, 2017 in Kentucky. And um, I mean, I think, it, I think it was in Texas. I think it was one of your senators that we're starting to get data and information out of Kentucky on what these laws do. And one of your senators was like, but we're talking about Kentucky. Uh, but, but now we're going to have Kentucky, we have Arkansas, we have West Virginia, um, and, and it's on, the list is only going to grow and it's going to be harder to refute by saying, oh, that's just little old Kentucky. Yeah, it's just ridiculous that, you know, all these states have always had this presumption that children should be essentially sentenced to single parent households and subject to single parent statistics. You know, I mean, it, it drives me crazy that you look at all these statistics regarding single, you know, children and single parent households, you know, higher incarceration rates, drug use, you know, teen pregnancy. I mean, just about every ill you can think of concerning a children. And it's like, yeah, our courts are ordering children into those statistics, you know, and people don't like to hear that. But most single parent households are court ordered to be that way. Yeah. Well, I, I think it was the state of Texas considers an at-risk child someone who spends was like less than less than thirty percent of their time with with uh, j with one one of their parents, and it was the standard possession order actually <laughs> ordered these kids to be at-risk children. 
it, it made zero sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I know, uh, you know, Dr. Linda Nielsen and the studies she's done, I mean, she defines uh, a, you know, single parent family or when a child has less than 35% access to one of their parents, actually. And yeah, the Texas standard possession order was around 23 to 24%. And that's only because in the summer, you know, the child spends a whole month with their non-custodial parent. But if you factor out that summer and look at the ele other 11 months, it drops down to like 18 or 17 percent for 11 months of the year, you know, and that's why you have so much litigation. Right. No one wants to be that uh, single uh, 18 percent parent. Here's a good question on, on our topic we're on now. So we mentioned special interests. So in the state of Texas, um, what, who, who are the special interests that you guys have had kind of had your battles with? Well, you got uh, the, the family law section of the state bar who doesn't really get involved because, you know, they're not allowed to. It's illegal. And so they, there's an organization called the Texas Family Law Foundation, which is a C6 um, nonprofit. And, you know, a C6 nonprofit is a group that's formed to represent the interest of a given industry. Like the, uh, the NFL is a C6, you know, it represents the football industry. Well, here you have family law attorneys. This group is literally formed to represent the interest of family law attorneys in Texas. And I don't, I think maybe one in six members of the uh, family law attorneys in Texas are a member of that group. I don't know, but it's thousands of people. And, you know, that's one of the problems in Texas. Since they have this massive group of dues paying members, they have a lot of money to pay their lobbyists. And our legislative session only happens once every two years. So, you know, they uh, they pay Steve and Amy Bresnan's, the lobbyists for them. And, um, you know, these, these are lobbyists that represent AT&T and, uh, you know, a lot of other um, interests. But, yeah, they have a tremendous, tremendously good relationship with, you know, the gatekeepers, the, the chair people of the uh, committees. And, um, you know, for the longest time, the, the chairperson of the committee just, he wouldn't give our bill a vote until like, you know, a month before the session ends or weeks before the session ends. And then he would vote on it. And, you know, other people would vote on it too, but it's too late uh, to pass. But yeah, it's the Texas Family Law Foundation. And, um, Every year, you know, when these bills are, uh, are um, uh, when everyone uh, shows up to testify on the bills, you know, I mean, you have a handful of family law attorneys. And like last session, it was like 180, you know, yeah. parents and everyone testifying in favor of the bills. It was, you know, it's like a joke. And then, the you know, they vote against the bills or vote for them. And, it, it dies, but it's, it's family law attorneys and the people who they pay to kill the bills. Yeah. In, in general, I mean, I think every state has one well-funded foe um, in, in West Virginia um, national organization of women um, was, was one that really came after um, their bills. But I mean, in general, in terms of groups, yeah. Family law attorneys, judges, judges don't like losing their discretion. 
um, and then women's groups and domestic violence groups. Like usually the opposition falls into one of those four categories. Um, varies depending on state. Obviously, like Ben said, Texas has a very powerful organization, very well-funded organization, um, in terms of family law attorneys. But then I said, West Virginia, their struggle was the local chapter of national organization of women, um, was obviously very well, very well funded compared to the grassroots efforts of what amounts to essentially building steam up in Facebook groups and rallying as many parents as possible. Because you guys in Texas, it didn't always, it wasn't always 180 parents showing up. Um, no, that's something no. that's a decade long in the making. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And as far as those other groups, we almost, we don't have like any domestic violence groups or any like women's organization groups. It's just the family law attorneys, you know, but yeah, it's been a while uh, as far as, you know, uh, in, in Texas and of course, you know, Facebook and social media helped out in every state, you know, uh, I mean, tremendously it gave these non-custodial parents a place to come together and it gave everybody a voice. And, uh, yeah, when I got involved, uh, you know, th- there had been, uh, groups before me, uh, but really since I've got, since I've got involved, I mean, it's grown almost exponentially, you know, uh, yeah, getting, you know, hundred and people, uh, 80 people out there to testify. I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of, you know, part of the exponential growth, but I mean, there's people who've been at it for and who are still just as, you know, gung ho about it. You know, you have Rustin Wright, and uh, I mean, he, he was at it, uh, you know, before I came along, and he's still, uh, he, he's one of the most, you know, involved persons I know. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it's been, uh, it's been, uh, you know, coming for a while. Yeah, because that, that's that's honestly been is one of the biggest struggles with really the movement is that, I mean, if a parent stops fighting, a parent gives up, a parent gets what they want, a lot of times those people fall off. And when the, or when the groups are not well-funded, you need all that grassroots effort. I mean, every single state that's passed one has had, outside of Arkansas, I will say Arkansas was extremely tactical in how they did it. But all the other states that have made progress, it's been, it's been a lot of times by brute force and just building an army of people. So, yeah, yeah, we've actually, I mean, the brute force approach has gotten us in trouble. And sometimes because, you know, you, you get some of those outliers who say one thing crazy and that our opposition have done a really, really good job as painting all proponents for equal parenting as dads who are trying to get out of child support, uh, angry dads, uh, that's pretty much it. They, you know, they've done a good job of painting us into that corner. And it's because, you know, they'll find someone who's made some offhand comment on a Facebook group. And it's like, look, this is what the members of the father's rights movement, this is how they behave. You know, this is, this is how they really feel. And it's really, you know, gotten us in trouble. Um, I don't think Texas even has a Facebook page anymore for the father's rights movement. You know, we've really had to kind of, try to control our message. 
Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the things we're fighting in legislation is they're going to characterize it as that. And that's why I, I mentioned Arkansas was extremely tactical. They were almost covert in the way they went about it. Like it was a need to know basis. It was an extremely tight group of dedicated people. And it was too late before anyone really knew what they were doing and what they what they had gotten done. Because they did it in two legislative sessions. They, they, I think they're on an every other year basis as well, too. They tried, learned from their mistakes, came back a second time, and, and now have what is the best law in the country in regards to that. So, But I, I agree with you 100%. I always tell people the biggest growth in this movement is with the invention of Facebook groups. Um, that's been the single most powerful thing because, especially as men, are we going to go and talk about our struggles we're having in family court? No, but for some reason, we find a group with the right name, title, name, and we tell our story to a bunch of strangers. And all of a sudden, we have hundreds of men saying yeah. the same thing happened to me. And so that's yeah. extremely yeah. powerful. Yeah, it, it was almost, and it kind of still is, uh, you know, kind of faux pas to talk about the struggle of the non-custodial parent, you know? It's like, who want, you know, who wants to hear that? And you know, I mean, the almost knee jerk reaction was, oh, you just don't want to pay child support, you know, yeah. and I, I still get that sometimes. I uh, I remember wasn't too long ago, I was talking to my good friend, man, and we were talking about equal parenting and he's not really that into it. And um, we were talking about a radio show host. I go, I wonder what, you know, that radio show host, what he would think about, you know, equal parenting. He goes, well, he would probably just think that, you know, men need to take care of their responsibilities. So in his mind, he was thinking I was talking about not paying child support, you know. And but, yeah, you get these Facebook groups together and everyone starts to realize it's OK to say this. You know, there's something really wrong going on here. And, uh, you know, everyone starts to realize that this is almost like an identity, you know, the screwed over non-custodial parent. And uh, it, it's okay to, to be pissed off like that because it's, it's affecting your children, you know, and uh, that everyone's on your side as far as social scientists, you know, and all the common sense arguments, they're, they're all on your side that we should be having equal access uh, to our kids. And yeah, social media has, you know, without that, I, we wouldn't, uh, I, I bet, you know, not one state would have equal possession laws. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it brings together people who would never speak, even neighbors that would never speak about their situation. Social media has brought them together. I mean, I, I just think about over the last four or five years for me, the number of people who live down the street, who live in my communities that that I now get to serve that I would have never met if it wasn't for us sharing our stories in these social media groups. All right, so we'll, we'll go ahead. We, we talked a lot about legislation, a lot about where things are going. We'll, we'll twist to kind of the here and now. So the way I usually start off with our guests is, so dad walks into your office and says, what's going to happen to me? Um, what, what's the process look like? What do you tell that dad uh, in that first meeting? Uh, you know, it depends. Uh, I serve kind of three counties where I am. And so, you know, part of it depends on what county we're in. Uh, for instance, if you're in Galveston County, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you, uh, you know, look, you know, we file this petition. 
will ask for equal possession time or in the alternative, the standard possession order. And um, we, we go in there on temporary orders is the first thing that happens. And I tell them, look, there's, you know, in Galveston County, there's, there's uh, three courts that handle uh, family law issues and they all share one uh, associate judge. And you got to go through the associate judge before you get to the presiding judge. And I tell them, look, when we go to that associate judge, no matter what we say or what evidence we put on, he's going to order you to pay child support. He's going to give you the minimum amount of possession time the law can allow. He's going to give mom the exclusive right to make educational decisions. And, and then from there, we can we can appeal that basically to the uh, to the district court. But, you know, I tell you, right off the bat, you're going to lose with this with this judge. And, you know, it, it depends on, uh, you know, what county you're in. But generally, it's, you know, we'll serve, serve your ex and then we'll either do mediation or temporary orders. Um, and then after that, if, if we don't come to terms, we'll do discovery for a few months and we'll do mediation again, go in there for a, uh, for a final trial. Um, Texas is unique because you can actually have jury trials and family law issues. So, um, you know, I, I tell the clients, look, if we go, if we go in front of the judge on temporary orders and you lose, I mean, after that, if, if you don't find out anything tremendous in discovery, you probably either want to settle because you don't want to have this judge hear your case again. You already know what they think about it. Yeah. Or you ask for a jury trial, which, you know, obviously is going to be a lot more expensive. But, uh, uh, you know, that's kind of your options. And in Texas, I don't think it's too different from many other states you know you hope they agree along the way and if they don't your chances aren't too good in front of the judge yeah see this is this is what's good so california is we talked a little bit before it it can be a crapshoot because mediation is mandatory and in some counties those mediators make recommendations so you end up with a young social worker making a recommendation on custody and visitation and we don't do necessarily temporary orders like you're going to file, you're going to go to mediation and two or three months down the road, you're going to be in front of the judge. And the mediators are wildly inconsistent. The judges have broad discretion. Some judges rubber stamp the mediation reports, even though there's really no, nothing behind them other than just an uneducated opinion. And other judges are just absolute wild cards. I will say in, I've been practicing for almost an entire year now. I've seen a dramatic shift. Um, in judges being willing, we get the mediation report back and it's close to 50, 50, or it's a 40, 60 split of leaning towards the side of, we need to maximize the time with each parent. That's one thing I'm hopeful about. I, I had a judge the other day who looked at mom and said, I'm in the business of get, making sure kids spend as much time as possible with both parents. So we're moving in the right direction, but I'd be curious to have your opinion on this. So California, it's kind of the wild west. The judge can really do whatever they want. Where Texas, you have the standard uh, possession order. In your opinion, is limiting the judicial discretion, because this is a topic that comes up. Is that a positive or is that a negative for non-custodial parents? I mean, it depends on, you know, I think it's a positive to limit the discretion, uh, you know, as long as, you know, the presumption is for equal possession, right? And uh, then limit their discretion. I mean, it, it, you know, it goes back to, you know, right now the starting point 
is the standard or, you know, um, the expanded standard possession order. And then a judge can make adjustments as necessary. Well, we want to start off at 50-50 and then the judge can deviate from there as necessary, you know. So, I mean, that's one of the things our opponents harp on is, oh, our, you know, 50-50 schedules are going to tie the judge's hands and it's going to limit the discretion. And I mean, right now, everybody knows there's a rebuttable presumption for the standard possession order. So, I mean, the... You know, I didn't know California was like that. And, you know, but for me, at least in Texas, it's like the judge's hands are always going to be tied because you're always going to give the judge some direction. Uh, We don't want the Wild West. You know, you got to have some predictability. Guidelines. Yeah, guidelines. Guidelines in Texas. That's the thing I think. There's zero consistency. And at least if you have those guardrails, you have some level of consistency and you can adapt and adjust to that. California, yeah. you have no idea. The Texas, one thing is this Texas standard possession order, the family, the family law attorneys and the legislature, they're very proud of that order because it is extremely detailed. I mean, you can say, all right, we're going to put in the standard possession order. And you know what? I mean, you know your whole possession order down to the hour, you know, just from the standard possession order. And so yeah, it's good to have guidelines, but I mean, all over Texas, you know, you mentioned the judge rubber stamping the mediation reports. And the most common thing in Texas is judges rubber stamping that standard possession order. You know, everyone gets a standard possession order. They'll deviate and give the non-custodial parent less time if there's, you know, abuse or neglect or something like that, but they won't they rarely deviate the other way and give the non-custodial parent more time, you know? So um, it sounds like California and Texas are maybe at two opposite ends of the extreme, you know? <laughs> yeah, de- definitely, definitely. So the next piece is something that's unique to Texas. And I, I guess I'll start, I kind of know the answer to this question, but the jury trial thing. Um, I, I know both of us, like we could say we kind of got our starts in, in, in the Facebook groups and social media and everything. And that's always a lot. There's always a lot of chatter in Texas around that. Oh, file for a jury trial, file for a jury trial. Do those happen very often? I mean, they're very impractical. Um, and do you think that's a good or a bad thing? They don't happen very often. And um, that's because most family law attorneys they, they don't want to do them. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot more work and I think a lot of them don't know how to do them. I mean, there are very, very few jury trials in family law in Texas. I've done one. Um, I've only done one, but I, I definitely, you know, I, I want to do more, but in Texas, the jury trial, only thing they can decide are what's called conservatorship. And that goes to like the legal rights of the parents, you know, are you joint managing conservators? Are you sole managing conservators? And they can assign a geographical restriction, but they can't decide possession, which is visitation. They can't decide child support. Uh, and th- those are the two main things. So, uh, I mean, I, I like having it on the table because, again, if the judge rules against your temporary orders and nothing has changed too much, you have you have that jury trial option, you know, but um, 
the uh, you, you had judges again. You could win the jury trial, and the um, the you know the jury will say, okay, your you know your guy is number one. He's he has the right to designate the primary residence. You know he has all these rights and duties, and then the judge will say, okay, yeah, that's nice. I'm going to let mom have the majority of the time and make dad pay child support. So that doesn't happen too often, but the, you could win the jury trial and then the judge still has discretion on visitation and child support. If, you know, if the judge doesn't like you, you can't get away from them. You know, they're going to put in something bad, but I definitely love having the option of a jury trial. Um, you know, one thing, a jury trial is most people in society they think mom's the primary parent, you know, and and so just because you have the option of a jury trial, you think, oh, I'm going to tell them all these arguments about how, you know, moms and versus dads and all this stuff. But I mean, you still have, you know, you got a bias with the judge. You have a bias with the general population as well. So it's not like, you know, you're starting with 12 people who um, who are going to see things your way. You know, it's yeah. still a challenge. Definitely. So next topic, um, something again, we, we chatted a little bit beforehand, um, is that with the onset of COVID, we saw remote proceedings. And I believe in Texas, you guys use YouTube, correct? Uh, Zoom. Zoom. Okay, you guys use Zoom. We use Zoom, WebEx, a little bit of everything. And it seems like one of the cool things that it seems it to do is to get all your friends and rile up Facebook groups to show up at your hearing to be court watchers and really just to piss the judge off. Um, what's, what's your opinion on that? And, and what advice would you give to dads kind of around that topic? Yeah, I, um, I, I like zoom hearings and we do use YouTube, uh, to, for viewers to watch the hearing, you know, if you participate, you use zoom, but you can watch on YouTube. Uh, I think it's a it's a fine idea and there's nothing wrong with it. If you want to get some court watchers to watch you and just, you know, look out for any any wrongdoings or just anything they can report, which even if they see something, you know, that's crazy and biased, I mean, what are you going to do with that information? But um, you don't, you know, I think you never want to do anything that pisses off the judge. You know, the judge is the decision maker in your case. And you never, ever want to piss off the judge for any reason, unless, you know, if sometimes if you're going to appeal them, that, that might piss them off. But, you know, if you got a legitimate, uh, you know, gripe. Uh, but I'm against having court watchers watch, you know, show up or watch your deal if they're going to cause any trouble at all. You know, if they're going to be making offhand comments that the judge can see, if they're, uh, you know, if, if they're in court and I don't know, they're making faces or something like that. Uh, you don't want to do anything to piss the judge off because judges are people, too. And they, uh, you know, if they get pissed off at you, just like anyone else, they're less likely to give you what you want. And, uh, you know, most of the a lot of times the court watchers. A lot of times it it gets people in trouble, you know, and I so I, I'm against it unless the people are literally just going to sit there and watch and not say anything. 
Yeah, I, I would say the same thing. At the end of the day, I mean, you, you no matter the struggle that it's been, you can't piss off the person that has the ultimate decision. So, I mean, th- there is some accountability, and there there are holding people account. But there's a there's a very I'll say a very thin line between <laughs> accountability and then just pissing someone off that ultimately is going to hold some of the most important decisions in your uh, in your entire life in their hands. Yeah, if you're going to shoot at the king, don't miss, right? So. Yeah. If you're going to, you know, if you have a course of action you can take against the judge and you're likely to succeed, you know, yeah, okay. But um, if if you're just going to, you know, cause the judge issues, have people email the court and, you know, post stuff on, on Facebook and rail against the court, um, that, that's not going to do you any good. Yeah, C- completely agree. So... I'll, I'll start. I'll post a couple of questions here because um, I think there's some good ones, and we'll answer it Texas specific, and then um, I'll, I'll comment on it on kind of California, and we can talk in general. So this one, this one's going to start out very Texas specific. So this is from when we were talking about the standard possession order or the the expanded standard standard possession order that now is presumed. Um, so if you go in and the judge has the ability to give you less than that standard possession order. What do you do in cases where you want that and then the judge orders something less? Um, where uh, you say when you want it, you mean like where if you want the other parent to have less time? You're the non-custodial. So you're the non-custodial parent and you go in and the judge orders you less time than even the standard possession order. What, what are your courses of action or, or what are your next steps to kind of help protect your rights and and increase the amount of time you have with your children? Man, it's it's tough. You don't have a lot of next steps. I mean, if it's an associate judge, you can do what they call in Texas a de, de novo appeal and have the presiding judge hear it. But, you know, presiding judges don't want to go against their associate judges too often. So that's, um, uh, you know, you have some success there. But in Texas... Uh, you know, anything dealing with child support or possession or conservatorship, just about anything to do with the kid, it's revealed on an abusive discretion standard. And decisions regarding possession, child support, and conservatorship are rarely overturned. You know, uh, I mean, it's very, very rare. In fact, in Texas, the only time there's a heightened standard is if a judge says that you can have zero access to your kids. Well, the, the appellate court says, well, you can only do that if there's extreme circumstances, you know, things like murder, hostage taken, and sexual exhibitionism. But short of that, a judge can just do, can do just about anything they want. So that just goes back to not pissing the judge off, you know, and, um, I don't know. I guess to be specific, if I was representing a client and the judge gave them less than the standard possession order, I would, you know, listen very carefully if the judge gave a reason. And I would look at the facts in the case to see if there's something we can correct, you know, mm-hmm. um, but short of that, not much, not much you can do, man. <laughs> So, I mean, in a state like, well, so I, it's different from state to state. So you get your initial orders here in California. And I would tell dads, keep coming back, keep showing up, keep filing requests for modification, because 
Um, a lot of times in California, when a dad is persistent and a dad keeps coming back and a dad keeps showing up and keeps asking for more and is there for the right reasons, usually the judge is going to be inclined to continue to give you more to a certain point. But there are other states. I know Oklahoma, your neighbor to the north is one of them. You have one shot at temporary orders. They're going to set temporary orders. And the only other way really to get it changed is to go to trial. So um, for our viewers in, in different states, it's different depending on the state. Some states are going to be a, if you continue to show up, you're going to get more. Others, it's like, okay, well, we have to go to trial if we want to modify this temporary order, which California is on one extreme. A state like Oklahoma is on the other where temporary orders are what they are. Yeah, no, you could, you know, you can get in there and try to modify temporary orders, but the judges want to see a change, you know, something that's changed. And so you always have that burden of a material and substantial change. So like within a suit, you know, if you if you're in a divorce or suit affecting parent child relationship and, you know, right off the bat, you get, you know, less than um, than the standard possession order. Yeah, I mean. Within that same suit, I would definitely, you know, if you know kind of why the judge did that, go, you know, go back to file to modify the temporary orders. Uh, and then at final trial two, uh, you know, you I, I think you that that would be a case where maybe you do take it to a final trial because generally you get at least the standard possession order, you know. But like if you get less than the standard possession order, um and then, you know, you have a final trial. Yeah, you can file a modification and go back. But uh, I'm sure like in California, it's, I mean, it's a whole new suit. It's a ton of money. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of uh, effort. I, I guess it just depends on, you know, the reasons. If you can figure out why you got less than the standard possession order. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. So here's a good question from Ron, more, I guess, uh, philosophical than than hard legal. Um, so I'll let you take this one first. Um, so I know a lot of dads uh, really, really struggle going through this process mentally and emotionally, especially when you maybe have a co-parent who's difficult to deal with. Um, what advice would you have for a dad who is struggling with those issues, even though maybe they have a pretty favorable custody arrangement or they have that 50 50 arrangement uh, so, so is, is the question like if you're having trouble like with your ex like, yeah so if you're if you're having trouble with your ex it doesn't feel like maybe you have that 50 50 order but it doesn't feel that way because maybe he or she whoever is is grasping at that power what what advice would you have for a client who's going to do that um I, limit your communications with the other party. I mean, that's always, you know, step one. Um, I have a good book here. It's uh, it, it's called BIFF, and it's a method for texting. Text, it's specifically written for how to communicate with your ex in high-conflict cases, and BIFF stands for Brief, Informative, Friendly, and Firm. And so there's like a, and I, I have a good friend who's a psychiatrist and kind of, he's going through his own case. And, and we used to talk about this all the time about how to text, you know, and, and how to respond to text messages. And I mean, a lot of it is as hard as it is sometimes, 
not feeding in or taking the bait, you know, and if, if your ex texts you and, you know, accuses you of something or something like that, you know, you, you just want to deny it and walk away, you know, and just don't engage. And, you know, a lot of times uh, when you don't give them the attention, they're, they're asking, you know, those texts kind of text kind of dry off. Um, if you're in the middle of a suit, you can actually reach out to the opposing attorney, you know, and ask them to take care of that situation. And, and here in Texas, I mean, attorneys will actually do that. You know, if I reach out to opposing counsel and man, you're, your client is saying this, this, and this to my client, you know, I mean, they'll actually go and in certain cases and, and talk to them. But uh, a lot of it, I think is just acceptance, you know, that God, give me the grant, uh, give me the, uh, uh, you know, help me change the things I can, but grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't. Um, I, I think that goes back to, you know, people that, I can tell, you know, I can't tell, but generally speaking, when I have a uh, consult with a new client, uh, the number one indicator of how they're going to do in court is like, if I can get a read on how important their ego is to them, you know, someone that just can't let stuff go and someone who's going to, you know, uh, uh, it sounds bad, but just assert their rights to everybody who you know, mildly, uh, you know, disagrees with them. I mean, it, it's just about, I think, letting go and controlling your ego. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think that goes for dealing with your situation and for prevailing in court. I'll say this. You just brought up a, a huge, I'll say, red flag in trying to get a non-custodial parent what they, where they want to go are the individuals that have egos so large that they can't accept even the smallest concession, even if it's going to move them 10 steps forward. Um, it's That makes it extremely hard when you're not flexible. I, I always tell people, my, my communication tips, I tell every single client, any consultations, you're going to be brief, you're going to be peaceful, and you're going to talk directly about the child or children. That's it. If they want to go off topic, if they want to demand you take an answer like, okay, I don't agree right now, but I'll think about it. Or you just let it go. Um, so brief, peaceful, and directly about the child, but the ego piece. Like yeah, if you, if you're putting in a, in a bad situation by the family courts, you cannot have an ego. Um, if you want to get where you want to get, you're, you're probably going to have to make some concessions on things that really don't matter to you. Um, I, I tell all of our clients, I want you to list one, two, three. What are the three non-negotiables you're going to have in this? If it's anything outside of those three non-negotiables, we need to be able to have a serious, uh, serious conversation about just letting it go. Because you aren't going to get everything you want. You're not together with your co-parent for a reason. Um, <laughs> things have transpired. So to be able to just swallow your pride and say, that really doesn't matter can really, really help non-custodial parents move things forward, especially if your co-parent has an ego um, and yeah. loves to see you concede. Yeah, no, it's, man, it's, it, I mean, I really think that's just the number one thing of, you know, predicting someone's outcome in family court, because, I mean, the judges, they see this stuff all the time and they can pick up on it instantly through the tones and text messages and through, you know, body language and the tone of your voice when you're testifying. 
I mean, they can tell if, you know, someone is is not being cooperative just because of ego, you know, or because they don't want to concede. And, uh, you know, I, I tell people when I was litigating my own case, you know, when I communicated with opposing counsel, I started each email with good morning, good afternoon, good evening. If it was a weekend, I would end it with have a nice weekend. If we were walking into court at the same time, I would open the door for them and my ex. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's kind of going down a different road, but opposing counsel, yeah, they're going to litigate against you because they're paid to do it. It's their job. But you don't want them litigating against you because they're emotionally invested. You know, they're they're emotionally charged and they don't like you because, I mean, you know, a lawyer, uh, especially a pro se litigant, if a lawyer doesn't like you, a lawyer can do bad things to you, you know, and yeah. I mean, a lot of times like pro se litigants, they don't realize it, but I mean, it gets to a point where they're so difficult where it's like, okay, whatever. I'm not wasting my client's money having these conversations with you. I am in front of this judge on a weekly basis. I kind of know what they're going to decide. I'm going to say, do you want to accept this? If not, like, I, I don't need to have discussions with you. That's, that's one of the things that I also find, um, interesting in the group in the, on Facebook in general, in these groups, one of the most common questions is, well, does opposing counsel have to respond to my email? No, they don't. There's very few circumstances where they're compelled to respond to your email and meeting and, and the bar for them corresponding with you in those situations is extremely low. I will say I've had opposing parties who have been extremely difficult that our meet and confers have been me saying no one word, two letters, and that met the burden. Like, no. Yeah. So, I mean, even, even attorney to attorney, and I, 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 as on kind of the other side of the bar, I mean, when I see an opposing counsel that I have a good relationship with, like they can, inf- they, they'll informally give me a call and say, what's it going to take? And okay, that's reasonable. Let me see what I can do. And they'll come back and say, hey, here's where I got her. Where can you get your guy? And a, a lot of times that's going to be cheaper. It's going to be quicker. And there's going to be more favorable outcomes for both parties. So, I mean, it's only amplified when you're representing yourself that you have to be professional. You have to be courteous because you're not going to be able to have those conversations if not. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And it, it goes for opposing counsel. And, uh, you know, I, I tell clients that goes for anybody in your life right now because anybody is a potential witness, you know, and, you know, you can't go to school and demand school records, can't go to the doctor and be ugly to them. You know, you've got to be polite, courteous to everybody in your life. You know, we just want a case because dad was polite and courteous to the dentist and always took the new court order to the dentist office, was friendly to the front desk staff. And so, He would get the text messages of when appointments were. He was on all the records. Well, then the front office, one of the ladies in the front office was willing to wrote a declaration saying like, no, when dad showed up, mom was the one who lost her cool. Mom went crazy. And mom's whole kind of spiel for a domestic violence restraining order was dad showed up to attack her. But then we had we had the front office staff at the dentist office saying, like, no, dad's the nicest guy in the world. He always keeps us informed. He's always attentive to the child's needs. And mom ended up getting hit for five thousand dollars in attorney's fees. 
So it's like being nice to people like that costs you nothing. And it's only going to be net positive. Yeah, man, that's a great example because, you know, say in that situation, if dad was on somewhat of a bad relationship with them, you know, called and demanded records or something, even if, you know, mom did come in and was harassing dad, uh, maybe they wouldn't write something in favor of, of dad, you know. They called but, our it, office. They called our office and offered. That's how nice he was to them. And that's what it got him full custody. Yeah. And if dad, if they had a problem with dad, they might, they might not lie for mom, but they're not going to help dad out, you know, and give, give them this, you know, affidavit. And so, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a great example of how all those little, just being nice to everybody helps your case tremendously, you know, in ways you don't even know. Yeah. Being nice to the courtroom assistant, the judge thinking positive, like those things matter. But I mean, those people around you can make such a huge deal because I, I, I'll tell you as an attorney, and I'm sure you have the same experience. A lot of times these neutral third parties want nothing to do with a court case unless they feel compelled by how they've been treated by one or one party or the other. Yep. Absolutely true. Yep. All right. So we're coming up here on an hour. Um, what I want to do is, um, so you are in the Houston area. Um, what counties in, in Texas do you practice in? Uh, I do Harris County, Galveston County, uh, Brazoria County, a little bit of Montgomery and Fort Bend. Uh, really, the area is kind of between Houston and Galveston. Okay, so you're between Houston and Galveston. And then um, where is the best place for the, for um, our viewers to reach you if they're in that area looking for representation? Yeah, I, I'm with Goldsberry and Associates. That's my law firm. We have offices in, in Pearland and in Texas City and getting one going in, uh, um, in Houston. But just Google Goldsberry and uh, Associates. I also have a a Facebook page that used to be for my solo law firm. Now it's kind of a unused blog, but it's Ben's law blog. You find me there and shoot me a, a question, uh, you know, directly. Awesome. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us tonight, um, sharing your knowledge. Uh, thank you for your years of, of effort <laughs> fighting for dads and non-custodial parents. Um, <laughs> as we wrap up here, do you have anything, any any one little nugget of advice you would give to all those parents that are struggling through the system right now? Man, I would just kind of echo what we just said. And, you know, when you're a pro se litigant and you, you can't compete with the other attorney in terms of, you know, evidence and knowing the law, but, you know, you have your one greatest asset that you don't need to go to law school for. And that's just being nice to everybody. Because if a judge likes you, he'll bend over backwards, you know, to even bend the law to give you what you want. So, uh, man, just be nice to everybody. And if you can't do that, you know, some people can't do that. Just don't be mean to people. You know, I mean, that's a huge thing right there. If you can just remind yourself not to be disrespectful to the judge. I mean, family court is all about who's the bad actor, you know, so definitely, be nice. Definitely. Awesome. Well, thank you. So Ben Beveridge, Houston, Texas area, Goldsberry Law. Reach out to him if you're looking for representation. Um, I am Mark Real. We will be back again live next Thursday, 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific on State of the Family Courts. Everybody take care.